Please open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We will be beginning in verse 8 this morning. Last week we introduced this new series called Faithful, looking at how God is always faithful, but then how also He is working in us to produce faithful ministers and churches and believers all by His grace and power at work in us. Uh, this past week, I was looking for some illustrations to, uh, to, to get us started with this theme of what I want to preach to you today and share with you today from our passage. And I came across two YouTube channels yesterday. One is called Stony Ridge Farmer, and the other is called Diesel Creek. I don't know if y'all are into watching YouTube videos, but this was this was a YouTube videos of two men who work on a farm or have property, and they like to uh, work with their hands, and they are also mechanical. They're good with engines. And I know we have some men in this church, some uh, women as well, who are much more familiar with mechanics than I am. So I apologize ahead of time for speaking in ignorance, but... Two, these two videos that I saw were both videos of finding old tractors and restoring them back into working order. The first tractor was a 1957 Massey Ferguson, nicknamed Earl. And this guy, Stony Ridge Farmer, I don't know his actual name, uh, this, this tractor was found in a field and the owner was planning to load it up on a trailer and take it to the scrap yard to get whatever he could for it. And this guy asked if he could have it. And after working on the locked up engine and after replacing some parts and working on this for six months, he was able to get Earl started up again to the point where he could use Earl and Earl was very useful to him on the farm. The Diesel Creek YouTuber, in a similar way, found an old Ford 9N tractor and all rusted up, all dirtied up. There were nests in the, in the exhaust pipe, all kinds of stuff going on. And he as well worked on that for, he didn't say how long it took him, but replacing parts, rebuilding carburetors to the point where he was able to get this tractor up and running again. And both of those are pictures of restoration, of redemption, of taking something that was broken and damaged and rusted up and incapable of doing any good and restoring it to the place where it was useful once again. And that is a picture of what Jesus does in our lives. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus is a great Savior who uses sinners to save other sinners. And so if you have your Bible, please follow along, starting at verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, 
for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I could end the sermon right there, couldn't I? I'm not going to do that. Um, you know me. But let us pray that the Spirit would help us. Holy Spirit, would you help us now as we um, pull out the goodness that is in these words, in your word. Help us to do that, and please apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your worship guide, you can follow along on the outline there. If you have a, a scripture journal, you can take notes there, highlight, underline, circle, whatever you want to do. But here are my three points this morning that I want to pull out of this text. The first is that under the law, we are all sinners. We're all sinners under the law. The second is that Jesus uses sinners in ministry, in the church. And then the third is that he uses them because he saves and changes sinners. And so if you have that Bible or your Bible or a phone or whatever, please continue to follow along. Under that first point, we're all sinners under the law. Paul starts out this section with, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Another word you could use for lawfully is legitimately. If you're using it in a legit way. In other words, the way it was intended to be used. Now there's some context here. If you were here last week, verse 6 and 7, Paul had been describing certain persons, it says, by swerving from these, that is the doctrines of the gospel, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding. So there's a group of people in the Ephesian church where Paul has told Timothy to stay who are twisting the law and misapplying the law and abusing the law to try to teach people and use the law in a way that was not intended to be used. Well, how does that happen? It's when you take the law or the Ten Commandments and you try to say, if you just do these things, then you will be acceptable to God. But you can't use the law. The law has no power 
to change sinners. Only the Holy Spirit through the gospel can change sinners. The law was never intended to make bad people good. That was never the point of the law. The law was given to reveal God's holiness and his perfection and what is required of us to get to him, but how all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the law, the Bible lays out three ways generally that the law can be used appropriately. The first is that it reveals how sinful we are. One of the pictures that is given of the law is that it is like a mirror or a modern day illustration might be an x-ray, that it reveals what is inside of us. That when, when you use the law, it can show you how sinful you really are. It can examine the depths of who you are to show you how far short of God's glory you've come. And so it reveals to us our sinfulness. But it also can be used to restrain sin. That's the second way the law can be used. Yes, we are not as bad as we possibly could be. And the law, in a way, and our conscience that God gives us by grace, restrains how evil we potentially could be. And so it is a restraint. But then the third way we can use the law is that because it reveals to us who Jesus is and his righteousness, for the believer in Christ who is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, it shows us it's a light and a guide for us as we are being conformed into the image of his son, being made more like Christ, which is an ongoing process, which never is going to end here on earth. We will continue to be changed and renewed day by day through repentance and faith. But the law in all of those ways can be used appropriately, legitimately. But when you take the law and you just try to beat change out of people, it doesn't work that way. The law has no power to change a sinner's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can do that through the message of God's grace. John Owen, who I'm slowly trying to read this year, he's an old theologian um, from the 1500s, and he writes in very uh, um, elaborate ways. But he said this, Some men's dangerous mistakes, who have taken it upon themselves to give direction for the mortification of sin, that is, to try to kill your sin, to put to death sin, like Paul says in Romans 8, they are unacquainted with the mystery of the gospel and the efficacy, that is, the efficiency of the death of Christ. So he's saying because they are unacquainted with the gospel, they don't understand the gospel, they don't understand what Jesus has done for us on the cross, he says this, they have imposed the yoke of self-wrought-out mortification on the necks of their disciples, which neither they nor their forefathers were ever able to bear. And this mortification, which constantly produces the deplorable issues of superstition, self-righteousness, and anxiety of, comp uh, of conscience, mortification from a self-strength 
can only produce self-righteousness and is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. I told you he had elaborate words, right? What is he saying? He's saying if you try to kill your sin out of self-effort, that's only going to produce self-righteousness because you are telling yourself you did it. The only way to really repent and confess and believe that your sins are being conquered and killed is to look to the cross where justice has been satisfied and your sins have been paid and through that faith, understanding that he's given you the spirit to fight and put to death the sins that are in your life. If you try to repent, if you try to confess, if you try to fight your sin in your own self-effort, you're fighting a backwards battle. But looking to Christ, looking to the cross, using the law to expose your sin, but then turning and looking to Jesus who has satisfied your sins is the only way to really fight your sins. And then Paul gives us a list of sins in verses 9 through 10. He starts to list out all the different things that the law helps expose in people. He says, The law is not laid down for the just, that is, for the righteous, but for the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, and profane. And in case you're wondering, you're in that category too. All of us are. That's describing all of us. But then he goes into some specifics about what types of sins. He says, those who strike their fathers and mothers. This could be a violent striking or those who, who lash out in disrespect for murderers. And we already know that Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. For the sexually immoral, that the word used there in Greek is the Greek word pornos, where we get our word pornography. Men who practice homosexuality, that is what it says it is. Enslavers, the, literally people who steal human beings and sell them into slavery. That also we've seen in history where that has been done. For liars, perjurers, people who give false witness, people who, uh, or anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. So the law is given to expose these things in our lives and in our hearts. Righteous people don't need the law. There are no righteous people. The law was given to sinners, for sinners, to expose our sin and point us to Christ. That's why verse 11 says, The law is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. There are some who try to, who, who try to pit the law and the gospel against each other. Okay? That the law is over here and the gospel is over here. They're, they're, they're fighting against each other. But Paul is saying, no, they go hand in hand. You, you don't understand the fullness of the gospel of God's grace and forgiveness for sinners until you understand how sinful you are. And the law helps diagnose your sinful state, how sick you are, and then the gospel gives you the prescription which is the grace of the Lord Jesus to forgive all of our sins. So, do you feel the weight of that? When's the last time you um, studied the law, the law? 
if you're looking to do that, there's um, a couple of great resources. Uh, we use here the Shorter and Larger Catechism. And I tell you what, if you try to read through those things in detail, there you can't walk away. If Well, let me say, if the Spirit is in you, you can't walk away from those descriptions of what the Ten Commandments really teach and what is required in the Ten Commandments. You can't walk away with any um, sense of self-righteousness after that. If the Spirit really uses those things to break you down. None of us, when we really examine the law, none of us can stand up under it. We're all sinners under the law. That's why Jesus had to come. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. And that's why Jack Miller, another preacher, said, Never again look at your sins apart from Christ. You can't handle them. You'll either suppress them and deny that they're there, or if you see how bad they are, they will overwhelm you. Learn to look at your mistakes, your failings, and your transgressions in the light of of Jesus's forgiveness. Because if you're forgiven much, you'll love much. But if you're forgiven little, you'll love little. And if you're forgiven little, you'll praise little. So be a big sinner and get a big savior. You see, it's when we understand how sinful we are that we see the greatness of who Jesus is as a great savior. So that's the first thing is we're all sinners under the law. The second thing is that Jesus uses sinners in ministry. You've probably heard me say this before. Jesus uses sinners to do the work of ministry because that's his only option. That's all he has to choose from is sinners. We're all sinners under the law, but Jesus uses sinners to fulfill his commission and kingdom work because, as we will see, he changes them to be able to do that. Paul says in verse 11, at the end of the last section, he says, this gospel is what I have been entrusted with. He's entrusted Paul with the gospel. Later, we'll see that Paul is amazed by this fact, that Jesus would actually use him, that Jesus would call him and save him. He's entrusted me. In verse 12, he says, though former, or sorry, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength. You see, we can only be used by Jesus if he's the one strengthening us to do that, to do ministry, to help others, to, to serve others. Jesus has to strengthen us. And he says, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul is just getting ready to say, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. So it's not that Jesus looked at Paul and said, Oh yeah, he would be a good one for ministry. I'm going to I'm going to use him. I'm going to change him because he's going to be a really powerful tool and testimony. No, Paul is saying I'm only faithful. He's only judged me faithful in ministry because he has given me strength. He's the one who has saved me. God doesn't look at anyone and decide to save them because of any potential in them. He chooses and loves and saves them purely out of grace and mercy. And then he strengthens them to do the work that he has set out for them. 
So Paul is acknowledging that ministry is only possible as Jesus qualifies us, Jesus calls us, Jesus makes us faithful, and Jesus strengthens our ministry. And then Paul goes into his testimony. What you'll see often if you're reading through Paul is he'll be talking about one topic, and then that'll remind him of another topic, and he'll go on that for a little bit, and then he'll swoop back around and finish what he was talking about in the first part. So what we're going to see next week is he's going to swoop all the way back around to these false teachers, but he's going on a little bit of a tangent here, and that tangent is a good tangent because he's going to share his testimony with us. And so what does he say? He says, I was formerly a blasphemer, that is, one who mocks God, who misappropriately uses God and, believe, and, and professes God. He, is a, he was a persecutor, one who violently opposed the church. He was an insolent or an ignorant opponent of the church. But then look at what he says. This is a key word in Scripture. But... But I received mercy. Literally, that phrase could be translated, but I was mercied. He's taken this noun, this this strong noun, and he's created it into a verb form. God mercied me. He showed me mercy. He says it again in verse 16. "I I was shown mercy. I received mercy. I was mercied. By God. You see, when you realize that you're a sinner, that you're incapable of doing any good on your own, and yet God has called us to do ministry, and and I'm talking about all of us. He sent us out to make disciples. He sent us out to love our neighbor. And when you look at yourself and you realize, "I, I can't do that. It's only by the mercy of God that he equips and strengthens sinners to be used in ministry. And that's why Paul says in verse 15, or sorry, starting in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It abounded, it, it, it was poured out in abundance on me with faith and love in Christ Jesus This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's trying to put emphasis on this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what Christmas is about, right? That's what we acknowledge this past season, that the whole reason Jesus came was to save sinners. That was the purpose of Jesus' ministry, and that's the purpose of our ministry He sends us out as sinners to save other sinners. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and we are sent out to save sinners. But then what does Paul say? Of whom I am the foremost. Now, there's a a lot of study and interpretation about this, right? Is this Paul just being really humble, right? You know, I'm the foremost, I'm the chief of sinners. All of us should say we're the chief of sinners. It's not that he was literally the chief of sinners, but he was just recognizing his own unworthiness and sinfulness and saying in some kind of humility, I'm, I'm the worst of them. Um, it could be, but I think Paul really believed he was the worst. 
Why does he say that? He says, I receive mercy in verse 16 for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying, I really was the worst. When you think about Jesus's ministry, who were the ones that opposed him the most? Who were the ones that on earth were his biggest enemies? It was the Pharisees, right? Well, Paul's description of himself in Philippians 3 is that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he opposed Christ. He killed Jesus' followers. And Jesus, in mercy, appeared and saved this sinner so that this sinner would display his grace to other sinners. So that in a way, nobody could look past Paul and say, well, Jesus can't save me. And Paul could say, you think you've got me beat? If he can save me, he can save you. Now, there is a sense that each of us should be able to say that, right? The more we understand our sinfulness under the law, the more we are convicted of our sins God can equip all of us to get to a point where we're able to say, listen, if he can do what he's done in my life, he can do it in yours. If he can change me and my heart the way he has, I know he can do it for you. And that's what Paul is saying. That because he has saved me, he has set me up as an example of his patience that he is working in sinners to bring about a transformation in their life. And he can do that in you. So let's just pause for a second and ask, what does your testimony look like? Um, I've asked this before and I've talked about this before, but I've heard a lot of testimonies that talk about what changes people have made in their life, right? I used to do this, but I don't do that anymore. Um, I used to look like this, but I don't look like that anymore. Is that like a dog howling out there or something? <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, so, uh, you know, and it's all about me, the changes I've made, what I have done. But what Paul is saying is your testimony is about Christ. What Jesus has done for all people, but also what Jesus has done for you. What does he say? Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I'm a sinner. And Jesus has saved me, and because he has saved me, he can save you too. All you have to do is believe in him. Here's, here's how he has saved me. Here's what I used to do, but Jesus, by his grace, has changed me to be able to do this. Here's what my life looks like. now. I didn't do it. It's not that I used to do this and I don't do it anymore. Jesus has saved me my soul, and he is transforming me. And he can do that for you. Do you believe that? that? That's what a testimony looks like. And so what does your testimony sound like? What does your testimony look like? Our testimony is actually the most powerful tool God gives us for witness and for ministry. Regardless of what it looks like or what has been in your past, Jesus can use that. There's, there's an art form, a pottery art form, an old Japanese art form called kintsugi. Uh, K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I, if you want to look this up later. Kintsugi. 
And kintsugi, when translated, means joined with gold. And what they do is they take old pottery. Usually it's a, a, a favored piece of pottery. It could be uh, like a statuette or something like that. But these old potteries, oftentimes an heirloom, something that you want to keep in the family. And if that heirloom has chipped or broken or shattered, what they do is they take the, the pottery and first they take this tree sap, a very special kind of tree sap, and they make a, uh, a glue with that. And in one documentary I was watching, they said this tree sap is the lifeblood of that tree. And a tree can only give so much before the tree dies. So we're very thankful for that tree to give its life so that we can use its lifeblood. And so they take this tree sap, they make this glue, and then they join the pieces of pottery back together. And then at that point, what you have, and they have to let it dry, it takes time, it's a very meticulous process. After it is dried and this, this pottery is back together, you can see the lines, you can see the cracks, but instead of hiding those things, they then take a bonding agent, like a, like a glue, another type of glue, and powdered gold. And what they do is they carefully trace every crack and blemish, and then they take that powdered gold and highlight it. And so what you end up having at the end, the end result, is a broken piece of pottery that's been joined back together, and you can see it, the gold just shines out. You can see every place where that piece of pottery was repaired. And it's beautiful. And when they describe this process, they say it's almost more beautiful to see what was once broken made whole again. And so we don't want to hide the mistakes. We want to show that it's been repaired. Because it's the, it's the repairing process that actually makes it even more beautiful. It's the restoration process. And so you have to be careful and you have to have some discretion and wisdom, but don't hide all of your blemishes. Let yourself be a sinner in front of other sinners. Use your mistakes of your past to, to share with people God's grace for you. Use that as part of your testimony to give glory to Jesus who has changed you and made you whole again. And that it's His lifeblood that was poured out for you to bring the pieces back together. That He gave His life so that your brokenness could be repaired and that you could be useful once again. Used for His kingdom and glory. Francis Grimke, another pastor preacher, said, What the world needs is the gospel of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, and that gospel preached by men who believe and who know from personal experience that it has the power to save. You see, it's those who have been changed by the gospel of God's grace that are most qualified to preach that gospel to others, to proclaim it, to share it, to testify to that gospel to others. So that's the second thing is that Jesus uses sinners in ministry. And then the last thing is it's because he's the one that saves and changes sinners. We've already seen this, but again, let us remind ourselves 
that it is Christ who strengthens us. It is Christ who gives us mercy and grace. It is Jesus who changes our hearts, saves us, and transforms us. It is Jesus who changed Paul. Throughout this passage, Paul uses a lot of personal pronouns. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, I, but I received mercy. He appointed me. He saved me. He delivered me. He had grace overflowing for me. Uh, Martin Luther, when he was commenting on another passage of Scripture in Galatians 2, he said the gospel finds its power in personal pronouns. When you realize this is for me. Jesus died for me. You see, maybe you've heard and maybe you said, um, you, right? Jesus loves you. He died for you. He, he came for you. He gave up his life for you. And maybe you say that, or maybe you say for us. But the gospel really finds its power when you realize Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. When Karis, I asked if I could use this illustration, when Karis was two years old, she was learning her personal pronouns. And when she was young and I would walk into the room, she would start, she would go, hold you, daddy, hold you, daddy. And she was asking me to pick her up because often I would say, do you want me to hold you? You want me to hold you? You want me to, you know, you, can I hold you? And so when I would walk into the room, she'd go, hold you, daddy, hold you, daddy. So then I would try to help her get her personal pronouns figured out, right? I would say, me, say, it's me, say, me, hold me. So then she would go, hold you, me, daddy, hold you, me, hold you, me. You see, she had her personal pronouns a little confused. She's got them figured out now. But, but what am I trying to say? I'm saying all of us get personal pronoun confusion when it comes to the gospel, right? Some of us are, are ready to say, Hey, Jesus really loves you. He died for you. He can forgive every single one of your sins if you just believe in him. But how many of us are preaching the gospel to ourselves? Reminding ourselves, Jesus loved me. He died for me. He died for every single one of my sins. That's when the gospel starts to get power. In the personal pronouns, when you really believe it for yourself, and when that starts to take root in your life, you want to share it with others. If he could do this for me, he can do it for you. If he really loved and died for me and forgives me, he can forgive you. The gospel finds its power in personal pronouns. That's why Paul can't help, after sharing his testimony, to give glory to Jesus. He says, to the king of ages, that is the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Now, that's an important phrase. If you remember, the Ephesians were polytheistic. They had a lot of gods, right? And Paul is saying, he's the only God, and to him be honor and glory forever. Amen. Paul breaks out in, in a doxology. He breaks out in praise. He can't help it. Why? Because he's remembering how good God has been to him, a sinner. 
that he would use me in ministry, that he would save me and die for me and forgive me and show grace and mercy to me. How can I not praise him? It's the natural overflow response when we understand the gospel. We sang about it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. John Newton, I want to close with this. John Newton was a slave ship captain. If you were to go through this passage that Paul just said, he, he started listing all these things, right? Lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinner, unholy, profane, who strikes or disrespects their father and mother, murderer, sexually immoral, enslaver, liar, perjurer. John Newton would have looked at that list and said, yes, 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 yes. Every single one describes who I was. John Newton was the captain of a slave ship, captured Africans and sold them into slavery, transported them across the Atlantic Ocean to sell them. He was a blasphemer of God. He used to mock and joke about who God was. He abused, he was sexually immoral, and God used him to write the most popular hymn in the world, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you, like me. The gospel finds its power in personal pronouns. John Newton said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, although my memory is fading, this was in old age. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. His epitaph on his tombstone said this. He wrote it himself. John Newton, clerk. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That's what God can do in sinners. He can restore them and use them in ministry to save others. And I hope he's doing that in me, and I hope he's doing that in you. I hope he's doing that in this church. I hope this church never becomes a church that people walk into and said, I can't belong there. They've got stuff, they're too put together. We're, we're a big ragtag group of sinners here, trying to tell other sinners how they can be saved by the grace of God. If we ever become anything else, God help us. If we ever become self-righteous, snobby, may the Lord grow us in humility and brokenness so that He gets the glory through His work in us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us in Jesus Christ. God, would You confirm these truths to us? 
Help us to believe that they're really true for us, for me. That you would show us that by your grace, you are restoring and transforming and changing sinners. That we are not what we ought to be, but we are not what we weren't once were. And that we are not what we will one day be, but by your grace we are who we are. And so we pray that you would continue to do that work in us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.